2: Hi, it's Manveen here, continuing our listen back to some of our favourite episodes of the year. Every now and again, new information comes to light that makes us re-evaluate the stories we've been told in the past. In September, David joined our colleague Ben McIntyre, famed for his books about espionage, to correct some World War II history.
0: I've known the story since I was a boy.
1: You were sent here to Kolditz to ensure you do not escape again, and you will not escape again.
0: The sooner you grasp that, the better for you. Kolditz, the POW camp in an impregnable castle in the middle of Nazi Germany where Jerry imprisoned our chaps during the war, but from which they kept on devising ingenious methods of escape. It's an inspiring tale of fortitude, camaraderie and cunning, a saga of pure pluck. Or was there more to it?
1: We have inherited a rather two-dimensional view of the war, that it's about winners and losers and goodies and baddies and you're on one side or you're on the other. Well, of course, life isn't like that and war isn't like that. You get every single shade of grey. The
0: real story. It's not just more complex, it turns out to be much more interesting. For example, Colditz wasn't only filled with white British officers, and it
1: wasn't a paradise of brotherly fellowship. There are lots of other elements to Colditz. I mean, not just the racial element, there's a sexual element, there's a class element. There are women involved in the Colditz story who, whose stories have never been told. It's not just women whose stories have never been
0: told, whose voices have never been heard until now. I can still remember it. to this day's laugh.
2: Burst out in laughed. Ha <laughs> ha If it are you escaping from here with your brown skin?
0: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, cold it's the true story.
1: I'm Ben McIntyre. I'm Associate Editor of The Times and I write history books about espionage and the Second World War. So, Ben, what
0: made you do this book. It's the first question you get asked every time you write a book is
1: why you've written this book, so why have you? Well, I took this one on with some trepidation in some ways because I thought that the story of Colditz was so well known. I mean, I spent my childhood playing the Colditz board game on rainy days up in Scotland. Uh, You know, I watched the 1970s black and white series.
0: With whom did you discuss this plan? No one, sir. Just a bright idea that the pair of you cooked up, is that it?
1: Yes, sir. But it could have worked. Could it? It was almost a ritual in my family to watch that on a Thursday night. It was watched by one third of the entire population. So
0: far, I have witnessed two escape attempts from this camp, neither of which to the remotest possible chance of success. Now, gentlemen, just get it through your heads that you are not escapers. You are failed escapers. And you will go on failing as long as you behave like Boy Scouts at a summer camp.
1: So in a way, there was some hesitation here because I wondered if the story was already so well known. The truth is, it isn't. I mean, the real story of Kolditz is almost completely unknown. And that's true of an awful lot of these Second World War stories. We inherit a very black and white view of them. And that's not surprising in lots of ways. And it's not necessarily to be criticised. But as... We grow a bit more sophisticated about our history. There are ways of looking at these stories that bring them, perhaps, to colour in a way.
0: Yes, because they were simple stories of heroism, weren't they, back when we were kids?
1: Yes, they were pretty two-dimensional, really. And and of course, there were great heroes in Colditz. I don't want to trash them all, but actually, uh, human material, as we all know, is made out of quite twisted timber, and it doesn't always run true to the grain. And I'm much more interested in those people who don't, actually. I mean, cold It's contained the entirety, really, you know, the, the whole spread of human nature from the glorious, resilient and brave to the considerably less glorious and brave and less resilient. And those are all parts of humanity.
0: I was talking to somebody in the office, at the Times office, about the book, and we were mentioning the board game. And I said about the book, yes, I said, and Kolditz um, was in a very particular place. And the person said, yes, it was almost impossible to get
1: out of. And I said, yes, because it was in the middle of Germany. He said, no, I was talking about the board game. (laughs) The board game is great if you're the commandant. (laughs) As in so much of life. I mean, it's some It, it's a strange game. It's actually rather a good game. I bought it during lockdown because I was researching the book at that time and forced my children to play it. It can go on for anything up to about a year, but it's a very simple game in lots of ways. And it contains none of the complexity, as you would imagine, of the real cold. It's, it's, it's a game which some of the prisoners in Colditz believed it really was that escaping was the kind of central raison d'etre of being there. And therefore, it was a game to play against the Germans.
0: Right, we'll come on to that game in a moment. Now tell us what Kolditz was and where it was.
1: Kolditz was and is a rather beautiful 11th century schloss in East Germany, not far from Leipzig, about 20 miles from Leipzig, perched on a cliff overlooking the little village of Kolditz. It's in quite a rural area, so it's quite hard to get to, but it was built by the electors of Saxony, or rather hugely enlarged by the electors of Saxony, as a kind of hunting lodge. It was also where the electors park their unwanted siblings and illegitimate progeny and so on. So it has 700 bedrooms. It's enormous. And it's rather beautiful these days. It's, it's been painted white and it looks like a sort of fairy castle. During the war, it was this grey, grim, forbidding block of authority overlooking the Mulder River in East Germany. And in the beginning of the war, the Germans came up with the idea of turning it into the highest security prisoner of war camp they could make. And it was deliberately a place where... Prisoners, officers of all Allied nations who had tried to escape from other prisons would be kept. The idea being that if you locked up all the Deutschfeindlich, the German unfriendly prisoners together, therefore they'd be easier to control. Of course, that was exactly the reverse of what happened. If you lock up everybody who is dedicated to escaping, guess what they try and do?
0: (laughs) Yeah, and it, it is quite a remarkable mistake. The, the other thing that struck me about it, looking at one of the lovely maps in the book, is just how far away Kolditz is from any border that you could get to to escape across.
1: Yes, this is absolutely right. I mean, getting out of Kolditz was hard. Getting out of Germany was even harder. Uh, and from Colditz, it was 400 miles to the nearest border, 700 miles to the Swiss border, which was really the way to get out. And in order to do that, you had to have maps and compasses and disguises and false papers. It was incredible. You know, getting out of the walls of Colditz was one thing. Getting beyond them somewhere else was, was far harder. And the ratio was about one in five. You know, for every five people that got out of Colditz the castle, only one would make it across the border. So it was a very low ratio. And the other thing about the castle to say is that it was full of holes. I mean, it looks like a a sort of impossible citadel. And of course, it's very forbidding. But actually, because it was so ancient, because it had been built onto over so many centuries, it, it had different sewer systems, it had hidden cabinets, it had staircases that had been bricked up, it had hiding places, half the walls were hollow. So Actually, as a sort of escapers place, it was more or less a paradise to begin with. The Germans, of course, in a German way, brilliantly began to shut down the different avenues of escape. Now, those of us who remember the TV series
0: seem to think we remember it only being Brits. But it wasn't only Brits, was it? Not at all,
1: no. I mean, in fact, the Brits were in a minority until the latter part of the war. When it did become an Anglo prison, it became British, American, Canadian Commonwealth countries and so on. But up until that point, it had been a sort of cosmopolitan place, really. It contained Dutch, Poles, French, Belgian... All sorts of different nationalities, and that gave it a particular character in lots of ways, because certainly to begin with, the different competing nations, well, they got on pretty well on the whole. There were lots of sort of language clubs and literature sort of exchange programs and those kind of things. They were also in competition over escaping, or oh, not only just over escaping, but they were in competition in all sorts of ways. There was a cold, it's Olympic Games after about six months, where each of the national contingents took part. And each displayed rather stereotypical forms of national behaviour in the sense that the poles took it very, very seriously. The French pretended not to take it seriously, but really did. And the Brits just lay around laughing the whole time and losing everything. So there was this sort of internal competition. And it it became a problem because with everybody trying to dig tunnels and everybody was really trying to tunnel out of this place, they were literally undermining each other. (laughs) One tunnel would run into another. And so they did eventually work out that a degree of international cooperation had to be had. Otherwise, they were tripping each other up. And everybody more or less signed up to this except the French.
0: So are we to imagine that there were international bodies of people sitting down saying, well, our tunnels
1: is going there, so you, uh, but our tunnel is going there? Yeah, but yeah, well, that was part of the problem. The Brits kept accusing the French of always pretending whenever a new plan was unveiled that they'd already thought of that. That, in fact, they'd thought of it months earlier and really they'd already got, you know, the dibs across that. So, of course, it didn't like all European attempts to create unity. It looks unified until, of course, it isn't.
0: Now, one one of the things which your book seeks to do is to draw out some of the characters who are in Colditz who haven't really formed a big part of the if you like the post-war narrative about Colditz if you like the called the boys' own narrative, and I was very struck by the story of the Indian soldier, Indian doctor. I'd like you to tell us a bit about him.
1: His is an extraordinary story because it's a it's really it's a story of sort of tragedy and heroism it's very remarkable I and mean, Birendranath Mazumdar was a highly educated doctor from northern india he was educated partly in india partly in britain he grew up at the sort of in the high noon of the raj if you like but he was himself a vigorous indian nationalist he opposed the raj british rule in britain but he nonetheless volunteered for the royal army medical corps at the beginning of the war it was captured at dunkirk and shipped to Colditz, where he suffered the most appalling racism. He was the only non-white in the British contingent. And the racism came not from the Germans, but from the Brits. He was treated absolutely as a second-class citizen, told that he wasn't allowed to escape, nicknamed Jumbo, made to cook curries. I mean, he really was treated as if he was a sort of servant, really. What made him so interesting, Mazumdar, was that, as I said, he was a nationalist and the Germans tried to peel him off. They tried to get him to work as a kind of Indian Lord Haw Haw, to broadcast to India, to persuade fellow Indians to rise up against the Raj. And of course the Indian nationalist movement was in part allied at this point to the German Reich. The great leader of the Indian nationalists, Subhas Chandra Bose, had come to Berlin and he met with Mazumdar, this prisoner, and they tried to peel him off. And I found this wonderful Bengali poetry, which I had translated, which Birendranath had written in Kolditz, where he describes his kind of intense internal moral struggle over whether to go with his heart or to go with his head. In the darkened light, the awakened soul seeking for a path which direction to take disturbed he starts to think what to do he then realizes the need for a companion the question is where to find one they are so precious at last he pleads with the gods to find him one Eventually, he decided that he would stay with the Brits, that he'd given his oath, went back to Colditz thinking they'll be much nicer to me now. And they were appalling to him. They decided that he was a spy and he was pretty much ostracized. In fact, eventually he went on a hunger strike and said, you have to move me to an all Indian prison. In that strange racially stratified way, the Nazis had created all Indian prisons in parts of occupied France. He was eventually shipped out. The hunger strike worked. He escaped from that prison and walked 700 miles across occupied France into Switzerland, whereupon the Brits immediately decided he was a spy and he was placed under house arrest in the end. I mean, it's a terrible story. But a really fascinating one. Absolutely, and very revealing. I mean, one has to be careful, as you know, David, not to project our current interests and our current beliefs on the past. But even for the time, this was pretty egregious racism. And poor old Mazumdar never spoke about it until just a couple of years before his death, when he made a series of tape recordings in which, for the first time, he really described what had happened to him. I came
2: to Kolditz in 1942. I, I found myself lost. How shall I put it? To me, it's sort of disjointed everybody for themselves, for himself. We had a common communal room to wash, clean your teeth, very small. So I was cleaning my teeth, and I heard Bloody Mazander, spy. He's going to Berlin. I said, Harry, did I hear you say I'm a spy? I give you five minutes. I counted the seconds. You gave him five minutes to withdraw it? Withdraw it? He didn't. I said, five minutes gone. And with that, I just rushed and hit him right in the jaw. He fell flat, and I got all of I sat on his chest, and I was hitting his head like that. The other chaps came in. I said, I'll kill you. I said, you don't know what I've gone through.
1: You can hear this kind of pent-up fury over his treatment of 50 years earlier by this point, coming tumbling out. Well,
2: I was getting bloody bored of hearing all these things. I thought the only thing to do was try to escape. I knew that if I was caught, I'd be shot. But
0: before you thought of escaping, you had to go and see Colonel German. In this recording, Dr Mazumdar describes approaching a British officer in the camp, confusingly named Guy German, who was senior British officer. He looked at
2: me and said, what can I do for you? I said, the rules are here that to escape, I have got to have your permission. I can still remember to this day his laugh, burst out and laughed. (laughs) Ha <laughs> ha ha Is it you escaping from here? With your brown skin. Before I left uh, German, I said look I said to him, Look, Colonel, I am going to escape one day. He again laughed. You will hear from me. I walked out.
0: As you say, you shouldn't let present concerns colour your pictures of the past. But on the other hand, it is interesting how we haven't heard these stories before, how they didn't fit the narrative which we were all brought up on.
1: Well, that's exactly right. I mean, in the myth that we all learned, this was a story about brave British men, white men, with moustaches, on stiff upper lips, digging their way to, to a different sort of victory. That was the way it was presented. And, I, again, I, I reiterate this because it's important. There were people like that. There were plenty of people like that. But there are lots of other elements to call this. Coming up, the other
0: unheard voices, a young woman combining lovemaking with espionage and the Germans guarding the place. Were they really the brutal martinettes at the Colditz board game, the ones no one wanted to play as? Or was there more to their story too?
2: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the
0: beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax
2: and think about
1: Well, this came as a huge shock to me because uh, when I, I was young, I was told it was an officer's camp. And of course, it was an officer's camp. But under the terms of the Geneva Convention of 1929, those officers had servants. And those servants were ordinary soldiers, POWs, privates, who were taken from other camps whose job it was to look after serve their officers. There was a ratio of about one to five, although senior officers had their own batman to polish their shoes, polish their belt buckles, make their food. And so running within Colditz was this social divide, an unbridgeable social divide between master and servant, between officer and orderlies, as they were called. And the orderlies, crucially, were not allowed to escape. Why? Well, there were good practical reasons for that. Again, under the Geneva Convention, officers captured would simply be shipped back to Colditz and spend a little time in solitary confinement. An ordinary soldier found, particularly if he was found in civilian clothes, was liable to the most draconian punishment. They would be executed pretty much immediately. So there was a good practical reason. But I mean, orderlies, they were never even asked whether they were wanted to escape. They were never brought into that story. And again, because the orderlies on the whole were fairly uneducated working-class men, they didn't leave memoirs, published memoirs, in the same way that the officers did.
0: This is an almost entirely male story, as you've said, but there is actually a woman's story in there, and it's a very, very unusual one. Tell me about it.
1: It's a fascinating one. I mean, uh, let me introduce you to a strange character called Ceko Chalupka, who was a sort of debonair, loose Czech flying officer who wound up in Kolditz. On the way there, in the train, under guard, shackled in fact, he happened to be in the same compartment as a very attractive young woman from Kolditz, 18 years old, Irma Wernicke, who was the assistant to the town dentist. And astonishingly, by the end of this journey, they had contrived to begin a sort of love affair. She whispered to him, you know, arrange to get yourself down to the dentist and we'll meet again. So Cheko Chalupka, believe it or not, chipped one of his teeth with a rock. It, ow! In order to get a dentist's appointment, he went down to the dentist. Uh, Cheko was also running the black market by this point. So he had a lot of spare cigarettes. So he would bribe the dentist to allow he and Irma a little time in the back room. He was said to be the only person who had kissed a woman while in Kolditz. He always claimed he did a lot more than kiss her. But Irma was not just an infatuated dentist's assistant. She was actually a central figure in the anti-Nazi resistance that existed within Kolditz Town. It was quite a heavily nazified place, Kolditz. but a younger generation, and Irma and some of her friends were already dedicated to trying to bring about the end of the Reich. And they began between them this sort of network to supply Checho with some very important intelligence about what was going on around Kolditz. troop displacements, you know where the arsenal was kept, who were the local Nazis, who were the local resistance people. By the end of it, the self-styled Kolditz intelligence, committee, had a kind of ideological map of the vicinity and a plan to take over the place if they needed to. And a lot of this information was being sent back to Britain in coded letters, which were written, believe it or not, by the Colditz dentist, who was a Jewish Glaswegian called Julius Green, who was a brilliant dentist, but he was also a very good coded letter writer. So you had this sort of weird dental connection where the town dentist assistant was supplying this extraordinary level of information and the coldest dentist was sending it back to Britain and it's a wonderful story again completely untold. What would have happened to Irma if she'd been caught? She would have been tortured and executed. It was astonishingly dangerous what she was up to. Her father was the leader of the local Nazi party and that wouldn't have saved her. I think on the contrary that would have made her in even more peril. I mean only someone who was... Completely in love and ideologically driven and a born adventuress would have done this. And Irma was all three. I mean she was a most remarkable woman. She was still only twenty-one when the war ended, and she got out of Colditz very, very fast. Ended up in California, where her husband was Ronald Reagan's bodyguard. You're kidding? No. <laughs>
0: Now, another story which we tended not to look at over much for very good reasons was the story of the people who ran the, the camp. And I have to say that one of the characters that really jumps out of the book at you is the leading uh, German in Colditz. So why don't you tell us a bit about him and what you made of him?
1: Well, this was a man called Reinhold Eggers, who ended up being one of my favourites in this story. I mean, he was never a Nazi. He was a soldier. He'd been a schoolteacher. Amazingly, he was an Anglophile. He had taught in Cheltenham, believe it or not. <laughs> Uh, before the war in Cheltenham Grammar School and emerged from his visit, year-long visit to Britain with a slightly warped view of what the British were like. He couldn't work out why the British officers in Coldes were so rude to him when the people in Cheltenham had been frightfully polite all the time, buying him drinks and generally looking after him. So Eggers was a fascinating man. He was a kind of amateur historian. He was really the archivist of Coldes. He was chief of security, so he was very much in charge of stopping prisoners getting out. But he was also a man of great civilization and humanity and he you know he never used violence he had principles he was really a sort of schoolmasterly type and he treated the officers the prisoners as if they were naughty schoolboys really and they teased him mercilessly but he's an interesting man a fascinating man really and he collected really all the artifacts of Colditz the escape kits the forged papers and he even got a photographer from the town to come up and take photographs of prisoners reenacting their failed escapes. Really? Yeah. So at the these, time, at the time. So you have these extraordinary photographs of men in sort of climbing out of mailbags and appearing from holes behind grinning for the camera. And I was so lucky David because very early on in the research for this, I got hold of Eggers' scrapbook. He had made a scrapbook of photographs, all annotated in English, which he'd given to one of the prisoners, to one of the prisoners at the end of the war. And this had just ended in an attic and no one had ever seen it. And it's the most astonishing collection of stories. And Eggers' story is itself not untinged with tragedy actually because he despite having been a fair a really a, a force for civilization within the camp and this needs to be emphasized he was not a nazi and the camp was run by the german army it wasn't run by the ss this was not a death camp this was not a concentration camp in fact the rules of the geneva convention were broadly upheld i mean there were exceptions to this, but Eggers was the one in a way on the side of the right, on the side of the good, if you like. But when the Soviets arrived in East Germany after the war and took over that part of the country, he was arrested and tried and spent 10 years in a Soviet prison camp. So he suffered egregiously. He spent far longer in prison than any of the Kolditz prisoners. And this may seem odd, but it's quite likely that that
0: prison camp was worse than the one by some distance that he'd actually been maintaining
1: himself. Immeasurably. Immeasurably. I mean, the death rate in those Soviet camps for for Germans who'd been convicted, in his case, of sort of espionage, quite unfairly, was was very, very short indeed. It was amazing he survived it. But he wrote a memoir after the war, and it's a strange book because he's fastidious and punctilious and rather boring and very, very precise about absolutely everything. But But shining through it is this sort of this humane figure, and so I became very fond of Eggers.
0: Now, of course, one of the other things that everybody feels they know about German camps during the war is that a significant proportion of them were places where all humanity was lost and where human beings were treated in the most appalling way. Um, Why do you think that the guards and the establishment in Kolditz didn't behave like that, but behaved in almost as if that was another world.
1: Mm. It's fascinating, isn't it? There, there is a class element to this. These were officers. The officers, the German officers running the camps, believed that they were were duty-bound, honour-bound, really, to treat them in a reasonably civilised way. And indeed, they took great offence at the suggestion that that they were not. People were not summarily executed in Coldish. People died. You know, if you tried to escape and you refused to stop when told to, you would be shot at and you could be killed. So it's not as if it was a sort of holiday camp by any stretch. But it did maintain a kind of almost a pre-war sense of moral rectitude in the way it was run until towards the end.
0: You've pointed out very well some of the contrasts within the camp and we've also made the contrast with some of the things that are happening outside. But the thing that I did not know until I read your book was that there was another camp near Colditz. I think now's the time to talk about that a bit.
1: Well, that, that came as a huge shock to me too. It doesn't appear in any of the more of the official stories. None of them. On the edge of town was an old ceramics factory. became a metalwork factory that was being used throughout the war as a Jewish slave labour camp. The life expectancy in that camp was less than three months. The death toll was terrifying inside it. We'll never know exactly how many hundreds of prisoners died there, but they were worked to death, absolutely brutally worked to death. It was run by the SS. Now, the extraordinary thing is that uh, the soldiers, even Eggers, said that they knew nothing about this. The prisoners claimed that they had no idea that a few hundred yards away, I mean, really a few hundred yards away, less than half a mile, was the systematic slaughter of people being worked to death that was taking place. Many of them Hungarian Jews, shipped there after the Nazi takeover of Hungary. And the day before the liberation of Kolditz, the SS guards set about killing the remaining prisoners. There were several hundred left there. And you could hear the gunshots from Kolditz, the systematic executions taking place a tiny handful survived either by hiding or by appearing to be dead the ss moved out the next morning ahead of the actual american army arriving and those tiny handful of survivors were brought to Colditz to the sick bay in Colditz castle where they were treated i don't think any of them survived but the shock with which the british prisoners particularly those who were doctors or dentists or medics of other sorts The shock with which they suddenly realised that their camp, comparatively safe in some ways, had been very, very close to a place of brutal and systematic death.
0: What you make quite clear when you say that is that actually the people in Colditz were lucky.
1: In some ways, they were extremely lucky. They didn't really know how lucky they were, because, bear in mind, they were pretty much cut off from the outside. But yes, I mean, it was a place of boredom more than anything else. Boredom tension, depression, ingenuity, you know, resolution in some ways. But it wasn't a sort of camp of the sort that we have kind of come to come to associate, although there was one within earshot.
0: What do you feel we should try to learn now from the Coldit story, if anything?
1: Well, I suppose... What I tried to do with this book, and I sort of, in a way, tried to do it with all the history books that I write, is to try to tell stories of ordinary people in often very complicated and morally compromising circumstances, not of their making. We said at the beginning of the podcast that, you know, we we have inherited a rather two-dimensional view of the war, that it's about winners and losers and goodies and baddies, and you're on one side or you're on the other. Well, of course... Life isn't like that, and war isn't like that, and espionage certainly isn't like that, and you get every single shade of grey. So, in the end, as I said, you get all sorts of different forms of human behaviour here, some of them laudable and some of them considerably less so. And I suppose the question that I wanted to ask with this book, which I try to ask with most of the things I write, is, what would you do? What, would you, what of this sort of spread of humanity, which one would you have been? Of course, you never know until you're placed in those circumstances, but that... That, I suppose, is the question I wanted to ask. What would you do?
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, associate editor of The Times, Ben McIntyre. Ben's new book called It's Prisoners of the Castle is out now. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel. The executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design was by David Crackles. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Our thanks to the Imperial War Museum and if you'd like to learn more about this time of our history, check out the museum's Second World War galleries which can be visited at the Imperial War Museum London branch. Thanks for listening. See you again soon.